Welcome to another episode of the Super Critical Podcast, where we delve into the fun and oftentimes nonsensical way pop culture portrays nuclear weapons. As always, you can listen to our show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play, YouTube, wherever you may listen to podcasts. You may also check out our website, supercriticalpodcast.com, for a full list of episodes and the occasional bonus feature or two. My name is Tim Westmeyer, someone who studies nuclear weapons and works on nuclear security for a living. And I'm joined today by Gabe, my co-host for the day. How you doing, Gabe? Hey, good. How's it going, Tim? Pretty good. I'm glad you're here because uh, we're going to do today another one of our mini nuke episodes. You know, we've got our full-length episodes and we got our mini nuke episodes. Think about the regular episodes as like a full-length interview jam-packed with nuclear content. These mini nuke episodes are like the best excerpts of an interview. Range of topics within the movie. We only focus on the tiny little nuclear content there. So even though it's small, we still pack a punch in the mini nuke. Exactly. Nice. Uh, speaking of interviews, today we watched the 2014 comedy The Interview about a bumbling talk show host and his producer who get an opportunity to have the interview of a lifetime, personally interview Kim Jong-un, the new leader of North Korea. But instead, he gets recruited by the CIA on an assassin mission before ending up foiling a nuclear war and helping North Korea turn into a peaceful democracy. Not bad. Yeah, that's pretty good. Uh, I'm glad we're able to talk about this today. I know uh, Joel, your regular show host, he uh, he was actually recruited by Dennis Rodman to go join him on a diplomatic mission to North Korea, given all the recent uh, mm-hmm. yeah happenings there. So Joel, we wish you luck in, in North Korea, Joel. Godspeed, Joel. So the interview, 2014. Uh, this was a movie written by Seth Rogen, which is one of the main stars of the movie, as well as his writing partner, Evan Goldberg, uh, who I enjoy, uh, wrote Superbad and This is the End, a couple other uh, big comedies. This film uh, stars Seth Rogen, as we mentioned. He's the producer of this Skylar Live uh, news program. It's like a talk show yeah. host. Uh, and he's, uh, he's a guy who really is happy with his work. You know, he's been doing it for 10 years, a thousand episodes of success and everything, but he really feels like he could be doing more. He could yeah. be, he could be the producer for like Larry King live or someone more serious who interviews politicians yeah, and activists it, and things like that. Not it, just celebrities. It's like a, it's like a TMZ. He's like a producer on a TMZ type thing. And he's got his co-host or I guess the host of the show, um, Dave Skylark, who's kind of a bumbling, bumbling idiot. Mm-hmm. They talk about nonsensical things. But... He, he's played by James Franco. Uh, and I, I always see this character, Dave Skylar. He's a mix between uh, David Frost, uh, from Frost Nixon, meets Charlie Rose, meets Ryan Seacrest. <laughs> Seems like that's the kind of character that he's trying to yeah, build there. Yeah, exactly. That, those are the profiles I'm sure he used for inspiration. Uh, and the other big uh, star in this movie is Randall Park, who plays Kim Jong-un. Uh, who I think is a pretty good casting they, decision. It, it, it It's uncanny at some points. You yeah. look at him and it's kind of weird, actually. Yeah, and well, Randall Park's great. He's one of the stars of Fresh Off the Boat, and he plays Asian Jim on The Office, one of the cold opens of The Office. So, and also on uh, Veep, as uh, he's like the... Oh, that's gov- right. Yeah, he's uh, and we had another Veep guy in this uh, movie as well, I think. A lot of Veep crossover. Yeah. He's also going to be in the new Ant-Man film. Oh, okay. The one that's coming up, uh, Seth Rogen. Uh, he was in a movie called The Green Hornet, which is a superhero movie. So it seems like a lot of superheroes in this movie named after bugs. I don't know what that means. Probably nothing, but something <laughs> I observed. People are probably aware of this film, probably not from seeing the movie, because not a lot of people actually saw it in the theater. didn't have much of a release, but it had a lot of hype surrounding it, because the movie was supposed to be widely released in late 2014. However, Sony Pictures, the people who distributed this film... Uh, decided to delay it because there was a massive cyber attack on Sony Pictures 
by a group calling themselves the Guardians of Peace. Uh, do you, re- you probably remember that, right? Yeah, no, at first I thought it was Gardens of Peas, but then, yeah, <laughs> no. Um, yeah, no, it was crazy. I think uh, a lot of the private emails and data um, belonged to the executives were hacked, and there was – it was never – uh, conclusively confirmed, but the thought is that North Korea was basically behind the attack as retribution for shaming the mm-hmm. the name of its dear leader. And now, now Tim, they will come after the uh, the supercritical podcast as well. So, well, we have an email account, supercriticalpodcast at gmail dot com. That we will certainly, I'm sure, I'll, I basically click any link that someone sends me for those things, anyways. So we'll see how that turns out. But yeah, the general consensus was that North Korea was behind the attack, although they. They've, they've denied it. Uh, they threatened to, uh, to attack the premiere of the movie if it was shown. Nothing ended up happening, but a lot of malls were concerned because people – is right around the Christmas time when this film was going to be released. So families would maybe not come to the malls where the movie theaters were co-located there. So right. it, it, was, uh, it was quite an ordeal. Um, North Korea did not like the uh, plot of the movie, which is basically to assassinate the, the supreme leader. Uh, they even asked yeah. President Obama to stop the release of the film. Uh, it's not really something Obama has control over, uh, even when he was president. But they certainly they they made the request. Well, I, I don't know if they realized that the um, yeah, it's not like the state-run production company like President Obama was ordering the mm-hmm. uh, creation of this propaganda film or something. Uh, exactly. So uh, here's a quote from the Ministry of Foreign Affairs spokesman about the film in North Korea. He said, "If the United States administration." tacitly approves or supports the release of this film, we will take a massive and merciless countermeasure. They also claimed, uh, North Korea claimed that the CIA and South Korea tried to assassinate Kim Jong-un in in April 2017 using a radiological or biological poison, which seems a lot like the plot of this particular film, which they tried to use uh, ricin. But but that that of course failed because Kim Jong Un is uh, is not susceptible to any type of poison and in fact poison makes him stronger. So. <laughs> exactly, you know all this hype surrounding the film uh, probably could have maybe helped its its success at the box office, but unfortunately it kind of flopped. Uh, not many people were able to see it because it wasn't in that many theaters, uh, and with critics only fifty one percent on on Rotten Tomatoes, which is of course everyone uses as the absolute. Uh, end-all be-all for rating systems. Uh, We'll talk a little bit at the end of the podcast how we thought about it, but let's go through this here. We'll we'll run through the plot so that we can get super critical about the nuclear content. And as usual, spoiler warning for this movie that came out in 2014. If you haven't seen it, you can get it on a lot of streaming services, on DVD, uh, and and check it out, or some of the choice scenes. We'll put the links to their YouTube videos in our show notes here, so check that out. Gabe, why don't you uh, start us off here? What's this Act One for this yeah, particular well, movie? Yeah, so so I think we talked about it. There's this uh, there's this show featuring this guy Dave Skylark, who's a bit of a, a bit of a ditz uh, dunce, and and uh, even though they're best friends, Aaron's kind of feeling that they need to up their game a little bit. They can't just be doing uh, yeah, what was it, Roblo uh, losing his hair type interviews and other thing, excess Hollywood type mm-hmm. pieces. So he um, he's brainstorming to to get something a little bit juicier, a little bit more serious. And um, his uh, the, the star of the show, Dave, he finds out that actually Kim Jong Un, the leader of North Korea, is a huge fan of his show and mm-hmm. says, "Hey, we should go interview him." Along, along with his other favorite movie, The Big Bang Theory, <laughs> right. which I just realized that's kind of a fun little pun because the movie it, the movie it. starts with a, a little girl singing a song about why they just wished the United States would die. And that would make this little girl happy. And then there's a, a rocket test right behind 
uh, heard during her song. So the Big Bang Theory nukes all make sense there. Yeah. It's pretty, well done, guys. That's pretty funny. Yeah, so um, so this is all timely because in the movie, uh, North Korea detonates a nuclear weapon off some small some small island in the Pacific. Not just detonating a nuclear bomb like underground, because they've done a series of nuclear bomb tests underground. Okay. okay. This is a we launched a nuclear weapon on an ICBM yeah. in a small island in the South Pacific. I'm pretty sure they don't own that island yeah. or have any sort of relationship with the people that live on that island, and a 15 megaton nuclear bomb went off uh, in the atmosphere. And you know, they sh- I don't know if they show a picture of it that they're trying to say. Like, the- There's a local, there's a real TV news uh, anchor uh, that has it on there. I think it's Brian Williams. Um, they had a bunch of, yeah, a couple a bunch different, of different like, real, yeah. So that might have been stock footage because it actually was video of a real test. It was a 1958 U.S. underwater nuclear test uh, at, at an, an atoll in the South Pacific, in a walk atoll. Uh, so I don't know if they're we're trying to pass that off as the actual imagery of the test or just here's some stock footage of nuclear tests. But right, right. Interesting enough, that was an underwater test. They were trying to test to see what an underwater nuclear bomb would do to uh, a fleet of destroyers and okay. other naval ships. 15 megatons also, by the way, is huge. The United States never fielded a bomb that big in its arsenal. The The largest test ever was um, the, the Tsar Bomba test. By the Soviet Union, and I think that was supposed to be 50 megatons. And 15 is it's it's pretty big. We never deployed something like that. Nine megatons was about the biggest we ever put on uh, a missile. The North Koreans in real life have never got anything close to that. It's closer to maybe like 20, 30, maybe kilotons, which is a lot smaller than, which is like a megatons, a thousand kilotons, a lot bigger when you have 15 megatons. Can I just say that I love that we're two minutes into the plot and we're already getting super critical yeah. here. Oh, sorry, so sorry. Is, no, right. it's fantastic. Let's run through this. Let's run through this. <laughs> uh, so, so Skylar so, sets yeah, up so, this interview, right? Yeah, so so they get they, they do get the interview um, arranged and uh, they, they're scheduled to go to North Korea. And sure enough, once the CIA finds out that Dave's going to be going over, they start to get interested in, mm-hmm. and they basically uh, recruit them uh, or honey pot them, as is a running <laughs> joke through the film. Uh, there's an attractive CIA spy who honey pots Dave and says, uh, "We need you to assassinate Kim Jong Un while while you're there." And Very politely too. It's not yeah, like we're ordering it, right. you to. It's hey, could you guys do this while you're there? It's like hey, if you're going to go to the grocery store, can you just pick me up a couple, a couple tomatoes, a couple. Well, onions? that's how the honey pot works. I mean, you, right. you got she she had a nice outfit on. She had some some cute glasses. And all you have to do is ask nicely. Then these are pros. Exactly. They, they know exactly how to push this guy's buttons. Because I enjoyed the the business meeting ahead of time where Seth Rogen's character went to China near the North right, Korean right, China border right. to set up this meeting because uh, they go to a place and they name it. They name it. It's a uh, Dandong. China, okay, uh, which is a – I was surprised. It's a, it's a real city. Okay. It's one of the cities where the largest amount of goods that flows into North Korea from oh, really? China. There's a lot of factories that produce goods that go into North Korea. Okay. It's one of the biggest ways that North Korea is able to evade sanctions huh. that are placed on it through Chinese companies that are there. And a lot of stuff gets brought over the border. Why the movie decided to put this much detail and research into well, a comedy yeah, like this? Yeah, that's what, that's what we were saying. That there were some aspects of this movie that seemed so – like so much attention to detail for what's essentially a buddy comedy or a bro comedy. Mm-hmm. Um, they really went pretty deep on this. They, they went into the weeds of saying, oh, how do we contact North Korea? Well, there's uh, an Olympic delegation. So there's probably a way to reach out through – talking to the Olympic delegation and things like that. It is pretty interesting. Um, one of the other two main ways 
that when the United States wants to send a back-channel message to North Korea, uh, one of the biggest is the United Nations delegates that are okay. there uh, from North Korea because they have diplomatic immunity to come in and, and they operate there. Uh, but one of the other big ways is the Swedish embassy in Pyongyang oh, okay. uh, sends a lot of channels back and forth and to the United States and, and are North these, Korea. Are these communications, is it with the knowledge? Does Kim Jong-un know that part of his? Yes. Okay, so this, this is, is the way we do it without having a, an official diplomatic okay. presence. Gotcha. Or we tweet at it. I don't know. We do either of this. <laughs> any, any of those. Since 2017. Yeah, we get <laughs> tweets. Uh, yeah, whatever. So CIA gets involved. So the method of assassination is uh, when Dave is going to go shake Kim Jong-un's hand before the interview, he's supposed to wear a, a patch with ricin on it. Mm-hmm. And uh, by having that skin-to-skin contact after the handshake, that will deliver the poison into Kim Jong-un's body and, and basically kill him without them knowing about it. And there, there's a lot of jokes in the movie. It's a small pat- adhesive mm-hmm. patch that goes... This is a running gag in the film of the fact that this patch is so deadly and they're going to discover it and, and that kind of thing. But all you really need to know is that uh, they're going to poison Kim Jong-un by this by this ricin patch. So I know this is a nuke uh, super critical podcast here. It is odd that they put so much detail into the other things, like the scenes in in China having a real location that's near the border. Right. Um, later on, you see this room. It looks like a conference room, like a long table where there's South Korean and North Korean guards there and the wall is painted blue i mean that's a real room that's at the border of the dmz the official checkpoint where these people will meet like that's where they held a lot of the north korean south korean delegations and they have that room painted the right color i thought that was pretty interesting that's pretty cool but one thing they get wrong for some <laughs> weird reason is is ricin is not dangerous uh it's not lethal by the skin touch if you get ricin on your skin you'll have like a little bad rash it'll be kind of itchy you know there's some cream you can put on it but it's not something that will kill you, especially like the way you see in the film. It is very deadly if you swallow it. You know, okay. a lot of people know ricin from Breaking Bad, right? Because they make it. You make it out of uh, castor beans. You have to process them, uh, and if you do it the right way, it's very, very deadly. And it, out of the course of a you know two days, you'll die apparently by the flu, and you never really understand why. Huh. It's very hard to trace it. It's definitely not something that will kill you by skin yeah, touch. That's interesting. Anyways, I don't know why they did that, but well, speaking about speaking know. about ingestion, I mean that was the um, so they get to North Korea, and actually one of the first things that happens in North Korea is this this little patch. Dave hides <laughs> it in a pack of gum, and the first thing that happens is a guard yeah. finds it, and the guard puts the gum in his mouth and is chewing it, and they they're just kind of like, uh oh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so plans already gone a little bit sideways there. And and this guy was one of Kim's favorite. That's right. Guards. Yeah. Like he knew him since childhood. He was born. Uh, yeah, yeah, like a loyal, uh, yeah, loyal confidant. Oops. Yep. So, um, so they have to get a new patch uh, shipped in by by missile. There's a whole scene uh, involving some some comedy around that, where Seth Rogen's character has to go out and uh, and and intercept this missile, and a tiger gets loose, and that kind of silliness. But mm-hmm. while this is happening, uh, actually, Dave Dave meets Kim Jong Un. And Kim Jong Un is this huge fan, and basically they they bond. They have like a bro. Yeah. They have like a bro moment, and uh, they're bonding. And Kim like takes him for a ride in his tank, and they're playing basketball together. And he shows him his car collection. Yep, yep, yep. yep. There's he got he's got ladies there. It's it's all kind of all kinds of fun. They call me incompetent. That's exactly what they said about me when I scored this interview. No way. Said Dave Skylark is stupid. And incompetent. You're handsome, competent, suave. How dare they? I pretend like 
Their insults don't get to me. But they do. You know what's more destructive than a nuclear bomb? Words. They bond over their love of Katy Perry, which you think at one point is just like a, a fun little joke. But it, this no, this is a central plot point, is that Kim Jong-un loves Katy Perry, right. specifically the song, uh, I guess Firework. it's Firework. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a pretty nice song. He likes margaritas. And he likes all these things, despite the fact that his father, Kim Jong-il, who passed away in 2011, that's when... Kim Jong-un officially took over as the supreme leader of North Korea, that at that time he was telling all his sons, you guys can't like this stuff, you're being decadent with the West, and that's why uh, you have to stop all this, because it's making you, I think they call it in the movie, effeminate. Yeah, but there's some there's some reality to this, right? Because isn't Kim Jong-il himself was a pretty... Pretty big buff of some Western, oh, yeah. Western culture, Western movies. He uh, he loved uh, parts of Western culture. He loved, okay. I think it was Hennessy, uh, <laughs> that he was a big fan of Hennessy and cognac. Uh, he imported lots of luxury goods, lots of uh, Rolex watches. Uh, he was he bragged that he had the world's largest DVD collection, and I'm sure a lot of the Western movies. This uh, is one of the ridiculous claims that actually could potentially be true. Absolutely. Yeah. So there was certainly a lot of that. And so there, it wouldn't be crazy, though, to think that he was being hypocritical towards his sons because he treats similarly his people in terms of their ability to have things versus his and how they should approach the West and all kinds of things like that. I know one of uh, Kim Jong-il's sons uh, who was recently assassinated, most likely by Kim Jong-un, one of his half-brothers. Uh, he got assassinated in, in Malaysia at an airport. Right. There's crazy video footage of that, most likely poisoned yeah. uh, by... Um, yeah, which is crazy. I mean, yeah. it, it, Given it bears the, some the weird... Yeah. yeah, I didn't even think about it. It bears some weird similarities to this movie. I wonder if he got some ideas from somewhere. Oops. Um, but uh, <laughs> Thank that, you, Sony. That brother was... Uh, the famous story with him was he was supposed to maybe be one of the people that would come up instead of Kim Jong-un to be the new supreme leader. But he got caught multiple times leaving the country, having a very, quote unquote, decadent lifestyle. And I think including one of the times going to a Disneyland. Kim Jong-il found out about that and wasn't so happy. Okay. Uh, uh, Dave and Kim Jong-un, uh, they, they're bonding, and Dave decides he doesn't want to go through with this, uh, with this assassination. He's, mm-hmm. you know, he, it's his friend now. Yeah. Um, what happens in the meantime, though, is actually the, uh, this guard that ate the poison chewing gum, he, he dies from the poison. Actually, in the process, is very, uh, gory scene where he accidentally shoots a, the other confidant guard from the F- Kim family in the head. And, uh, so Kim Jong-un is, like, devastated, and they, there's a scene in a restaurant where all you know Kim Jong Un is when he's talking to Dave he's kind of speaking in a rational way mm-hmm. you know not crazy at all and he just goes on this rant about showing what a strong person he is and threatening to nuclear world and all this kind of stuff to those who seek to undermine me at home and abroad i cannot respond with anything less than the totality of my strength If a billion people across the earth and in my own country must be burned to prove it, then my worthiness as a king will be demonstrated! And Dave uh, starts to wonder whether this guy's actually 
um, actually a little bit off his rocker and whether he's been given a false uh, impression. There, there was this one, when they're brought into North Korea first, they're shown this grocery store that's mm-hmm. full of food and, and there's a, a, a fat child outside with a lollipop and he goes to that grocery store and sees it's all fake. It's like a Potemkin village type um, type thing. Fake so. news, fake grocery yeah, stores. Exactly. Exactly. 2017. <laughs> Hashtag 2017. Um, so, so they decide that, uh, it, but instead of, um, instead of taking him down with the poison, what Dave's going to do is he's going to take him down with the interview. He's going to show North Korea and the world that, that Kim Jong-un is, is a really, is just a mortal person. He's not, he's not a person who, you know, can speak to dolphins or <laughs> yeah, there's a running joke that he doesn't like pee or poop in the movie. Um, and this is the idea of uh, Suk, who is a person who's like a communications manager, director for, for North Korea. And her and Seth Rogen's character have the, uh, a romantic interest here. Uh, it's one of the one of the parts of the movie that I'm not really super comfortable with because of how the eh, – it's not great. Uh, but it's a comedy, I suppose. You can say at least that it wasn't trying for high art. Right. Um, but she has the idea, yeah, of instead of killing him, make him look – Make him bleed. Make him look like not a yep. god. Yep, um, that's right. Make him cry, which I Skylar's very good at, at touching those emotional heartstrings. So the interview goes down, and uh, it starts off with Kim Jong-un gives Dave a puppy, and uh, and Dave is like, uh, he's overwhelmed. He, he just loves this puppy, and he starts asking these softball questions. Everyone's worried that he's gonna he's not going to stick to the plan, but then he lays into him, and he starts asking questions about margaritas and Mm -hmm. well it starts with why isn't he feeding his uh people but then question about margaritas and Katy perry and ends with a uh a a very interesting rendition of firework and (laughs) which is brings tears to the eyes of the the fearless leader i don't need my father i am strong Also, it, I like that interview because he does a little bit of uh, – there's a back and forth there. Uh, Kim Jong-un says, hey, well, I can't feed my people because there are international yeah, sanctions right, right. against me. Isn't it amazing that we've been able to do as much on our own despite all of this international pressure when he starts to turn the table? Uh, when Skylar starts to put the pressure on, he says, you've been spending $800 million on your nukes per year and, and you have you know how many money to feed your people weirdly enough that's a pretty close number to the amount of really? uh, that they spend yeah oh, cool. uh, it's probably a little bit higher uh, but not by much it's yeah. probably still less than a less than a billion but at least around 2014 that number was pretty accurate so again fascinating bit of accuracy they even this compound where they're at which is Kim Jong Un home okay uh, seems to be close uh, maybe a little more dreary but pretty close to the the real place which is it has a couple different names uh usually it's called central luxury mansion or residence number 55 is kind of the different names that either internally within korea or how u.s observers uh talk about that particular place okay but it is interesting it's a it's a big compound it's got a lot of houses uh it's one of the places where kim jong-un decided to to make his home there's an underground railroad station that can get around to different places, so it's a little bit safer on that front. It also has a somewhat nuke-proof bunker okay. uh, with a lot of concrete surrounding it where they can conduct war plans and, and wartime activities underneath in the event of war. Uh, it's fairly well-guarded, a lot of layers of security okay. and things like that against conventional attacks. Yeah. So it's not just a home. Okay. It's also a compound. Yeah. That's what it looked like in the movie, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it looked like a fortress or something. Well, they do a good job of, of matching up the architecture that is in Pyongyang versus um, kind of what you would think 
what you might think it looks like because in in real life the pictures that have gotten out of the country you can see that a lot of the country especially the railroad stations look a lot like it's just a stuck in time yeah looks a lot like yeah, 1950s exactly. 1960s uh time period because that was a lot of exchanges with the soviet union and the same architecture yeah. and it's just there uh so it's fascinating to see that they attach that to his compound and it Maybe it's not exactly accurate, but it looks pretty cool. But you noticed that the oh, airport, the airport yeah. where they landed in Pyongyang, <laughs> it looks exactly like the actual airport. Yeah, no, because we were they had uh, Pyongyang on the airport in Western characters, and Tim was like, "That's that." Tim got super critical. I was like, "Actually, Tim, I think that's what it really looks like." And we we consulted the Google, and mm-hmm. the Google, yeah, no, they did a good job with that. Well, Gabe's a pilot; and he notices these yeah, things. Exactly. So I appreciate your keen insight on that front. So the interview goes down. So, so uh, according to the plan, Kim Jong Un is is shamed in front of his countrymen and the whole world. And as this is going on, there's kind of a, a battle ensuing in the control room where the Kim Jong Un loyalists are trying to stop the broadcast from going on. And after the interview, this kind of spills out into the compound, and you get the sense that just chaos is breaking loose, and the whole country is is kind of getting destabilized because of this interview. And uh, you see uh, Dave and Aaron are able to escape with uh, – sorry, what was the woman's the – Souk. Souk with Souk. So the, the three of them escape. They go into the tank, and uh, Kim Jong-un is in a helicopter, and there's this epic scene where, like, Kim Jong-un wants to launch all his nuclear weapons, and, like, all around them there's, like, these uh, these missiles coming out of the silos, and – he yells out. <laughs> he says, like, on my order, prepare the launch, launch on my command, and he starts counting down. And then Kim's, like, yelling, like, Dave, and Dave's, like, Kim, and it's just, yep. it's ridiculously over so, the top. So Kim's on the radio on, in his helicopter with this, radioing this random, I don't know, 20-something yeah. uh, security official who's got his hands on a big red plunger button. There are always big red buttons right, in movies. Exactly, exactly. That's just what we think it is, but... So yeah, and his big red button, and he goes three, two, but before he can say one, a tank, the tank, which I think is, I refer to it as Chekhov's tank, because you see it earlier in the movie when they're hanging out, Kim and, uh, and Skylar, this tank fires up a rocket to the beautiful music of Katy Perry's firework, hits the air helicopter, and then in this slow motion, very graphic, supposedly in the original cut, much more graphic scene, Kim Jong-un's head basically explodes. Yeah, like vaporized, yeah. Um, so, yeah, so he dies. Uh, clearly the whole the whole country is kind of in chaos. Um, uh, the, Dave and Aaron are able to escape through a tunnel. Uh, Suk uh, ends up staying behind to make sure that the, uh, as she says, I think, that the power doesn't fall into the wrong hands. Mm-hmm. And uh, Dave and Aaron are rescued by a SEAL team disguised as as uh, North Korean soldiers that was alluded to earlier in the movie as well. And, and uh, it's kind of happily ever after yeah. uh, Dave is able to write a book about his experience. The title was some, uh, there's a lot of Lord of the Rings jokes in this. And the title had some, Unex- uh, it was called, I think it was called like Skylar, Dave Skylar and unexpected journey. So yeah, I'm not a Lord of the Rings fan. I'm sure all you Lord of the Rings fans out there would, Appreciate that. It, it was pretty good. Uh, I appreciated the Lord of the Rings humor in there. I, I actually got more of that references than I did the Katy Perry yeah. stuff because I, you know, I'm aware of that song. I, I saw the Super Bowl. Well, you don't like Katy Perry? You don't drink margaritas, Tim? If Kim Jong Un wasn't a terrible, 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 terrible times fifty <laughs> at, at person, more, yeah, exactly. Uh, he does seem like he lives quite a crazy life. Um, so he's the second of three children of of Kim Jong Il. Uh, he's got a lot of stepbrothers. Uh, he is assumed to be around 33 years old. This is in 2017. We're recording this. So a 
kind of right about my age. Yeah. Um, he's a big fan of basketball, uh, which a lot of people know. Uh, he grew up possibly – a lot of reports indicate that he grew up in a boarding school in Switzerland. Okay. And the people that had talked to, talked to him knew they played a lot of basketball. He was a big fan of the Michael Jordan Bulls oh, wow. uh, and, and, and all that 1990s basketball. And big fan of Kobe Bryant and myself as a Los Angeles Lakers fan – we could talk a little bit about that. He's also a big fan of skiing, which I really? know. Yeah. I am, no, I'm a, I'm a skier. No, there is a I, – I was looking at this last week. There's a, a very luxurious ski resort in North Korea. And like all things in North Korea, it's like completely abandoned. There's nobody that uses it. it all the pictures of it are completely empty, but it's beautiful with these like handcrafted mm-hmm. wood signs, similar to something you would make on your wood-burning tent. <laughs> and uh, no, seriously, it's, it's interesting. Now I know why. Yeah, there's a, there's a, a photo of Kim Jong-un by himself on a ski lift. It's kind of sad <laughs> if you think about it. But uh, he definitely doesn't have skis on, but he's, he's checking it out. And I think he, was, he's, cool. he says he has an intimate hand in building all these things. Uh, he loves himself some Johnny Walker whiskey, and he has a Mercedes-Benz 600 luxury sedan. Uh, not a Cadillac like they show in the movie, but okay. he's got one of these cars uh, and, and smokes fancy cigarettes and – yeah, so he seems like he's a pretty good guy, except for the fact that you know he's basically running over, a, ruling a country where a lot of people are starving. There are mass concentration camps and, and workers that are essentially treated in slavery-like conditions. And most likely, he ordered his uncle, uh, who was a reformist um, before he took over, uh, to be killed by uh, anti-aircraft artillery gun. Yeah, and here, so, I mean, well, we're taping this in in August, and you know, we're here. North Korea is back in the news. Uh, Donald Trump had some some heated exchanges with with North Korea about their you know their missile program and their threats to target Guam and so yeah very much very much in the news for some some bad stuff and I think people are definitely having an eye on North Korea these days. Well, let's get into it. Let's get into the nuclear plot. Uh, so the movie ends as we mentioned. They're now a democracy. Uh, I think they say elections are about to be held and and everything seems like it's it's working out pretty good. This movie definitely is one of those films where North Korea is treated like a, a silly joke right? in many ways. Yeah. It's, it's funny. We think of all the things like, aren't they odd? They, their leader says that they don't poop or that he yeah. talks to, to dolphins. And it's kind of a silly place that we really shouldn't necessarily worry about because they're never going to build these weapons. They're, they're backwards. Um, I think one of the biggest things that maybe this movie is a little better than some other caricatures of North Korea, but... It, it's a weird country, but it shouldn't be considered a joke, at least in terms of its uh, nuclear weapons and missile program. The Defense Intelligence Agency uh, recently reported that they believe North Korea is, is capable of fitting a compact nuclear warhead on some of their ballistic missiles that they've recently tested. Uh, the agency says that the probably the upper range of how many nuclear warheads uh, North Korea has is somewhere around 60 depends a lot on how much we think they have in terms of fissile material, plutonium and uranium, which is up from 40 just a couple of months ago. So and, there's clearly an upwards trajectory in how many weapons they might have. And remind remind the listeners, so compared to United States, how much in the United States arsenal, just, just for comparison? Thousands. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So 60, but even 20, yeah. even 10 would still be a pretty substantial number. But as we'll get into a little bit later on, there is a certain point where – as a country that's new to nuclear weapons and nuclear weapons development, there's a certain point where you start to feel a little bit more secure in your ability to deter another country from using nuclear weapons against you. Right now, they're in this interesting period where they have nuclear weapons, but if we knew where they were and if we were willing to uh, launch a nuclear attack on those weapons themselves, 
you potentially could get them. But with the big caveat of knowing where they are and be willing to do what this using nuclear weapons and not worry yeah. about a conventional right. retaliation against right. Seoul. Uh, North Korea is also great at evading sanctions. They've been very good at adapting uh, their procurement networks, going through a lot of uh, false companies that are set up. One of the stories that re- recently broke is that they use embassies around the world as fronts for luxury goods and other things being moved around. So they can export goods, import goods. Uh, it's not as probably as good as it could be, right. but it's it's fairly good enough that they're able to um, have the fun, the funds to build, uh, which is mostly these days an, in, an indigenous nuclear weapon and missile program. Really? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, are they getting help from, from anyone in this, or is this just kind of them doing it on their own? They had a lot of help from Iran and the Soviet Union and China at various points in their development. But over the last couple of years, they've gotten to the point where they can build their own rockets. They may use old designs for the initial starting point. But this latest uh, rocket, uh, which again we'll talk about in a few seconds here, is is mostly an indigenous design. At least okay. they've adapted it to the point now where they can build it without outside help. Well, okay, so so they have this program. They have you know a, a, a small arsenal, if not a you know if if not the same size as the United States. I mean, where does that put them from a strategic standpoint? Mm-hmm. Like, where does that put them um, with respect to us? There is a big debate about what North Korea wants its nuclear weapons for. Is it to have a plan that they want to unify North and South Korea under their control? Do they just have ambitions on attacking South Korea, Japan, the United States, going after those countries because they just that's just a mad they're madmen they're crazy? Or are they things that they have simply to survive? They are consistently worried about the United States or South Korea either trying to assassinate their leaders, uh, trying to do regime change. Uh, recently in the news, there's been conversations w- uh, in the U.S. Congress about trying to separate North Korea's leaders from their n- nuclear weapons program. Those words sound a lot like regime change. And they look at countries like Iraq, Libya, countries who previously had WMD programs and then got rid of them. And then turns out what happened to them, they got overthrown by the United States and their leaders were hung or shot in the yeah. streets. If you have a, a WMD program plus an eccentric leader who kills his own people – the, the track record there isn't very good. So a lot of those different things come together and people are trying to figure out how much of this is real, how much – what's the actual purpose? Because North Korea is – it's a hermit kingdom. It's hard to understand and look into inside that country and try to figure out. A lot of things we know are from defectors that leave the country, right. uh, either go to South Korea or they go somewhere else, maybe the United States. There's actually someone – we're currently in uh, Alex Arlington, Virginia, not too far from here. There is someone living who used to be uh, the procurement network guy for North Korea, and he's left, and he's now uh, helping people understand their really? networks. It's fascinating. So it is trying to understand those questions are, are very difficult, but you mentioned strategic – perspective on this and and deterrence. Well, one of the biggest things that we worry about about North Korea is crisis instability or crisis stability, like those that balance. I would probably say from my my view, it's not likely that North Korea just one day is going to wake up uh, and and decide to launch an attack against the United States. Most likely he's not going to have a an interview with some Western journalist and gets just gets so angry that he's going to launch because Anderson Cooper or Sanjay not, Gupta or something. Yeah, he's not going to see something on TV and then tweet out like, "All right, here we go. Uh, you guys are about to get attacked." Because it would mean most likely the suicide of his entire leadership 
and North Korea would be overthrown. There would be some damage done to the United States and most likely South Korea and Japan, but it would result in their destruction uh, if it was an outright attack. Um, China's even said, if you start this war, we're not going to back you up. And, uh, and you, you think he knows that even though he seems kind of kind of loony, he, he kind of knows this, you think? I think the North Korean leaders are, are mostly horrible, but they are rational. They, they have an understanding of what they want mm-hmm. and, and kind of what they want to do to prevent their destruction. Uh, but what we worry about is a crisis, maybe miscalculation. Kim Jong-un's threatened uh, to consider launching a test rocket uh, over Japan. Most of their tests have been done in North Korean airspace or in international waters. This particular one would test a, a, a medium-range rocket. It would fl- fly a test missile over, dis- over Japan and then land uh, several uh, kilometers away from Guam, a U.S. military base. Trump came back and said, oh, if they tried to do that, they would be met with uh, uh, fire and fury, something like the world has never seen. Those kind of things, if, if they did, North Korea now said that they're not going to follow through with that plan, that they were just studying it, which is what they originally said they were going to do. Um, if they would have gone through with that and if the United States would have shot that test missile down, which you can could we, argue. Can we, what, do, can we do that? I mean, if we tried, we would hope that we did, because okay. if we missed, our entire <laughs> missile defense system is in doubt. But if we were able to do that, or even if, even if we tried, that would be considered probably by North Korea to potentially be an act of war, shooting down someone's test missiles. That's a pretty big deal. Uh, we would not like it so much. In recent weeks, we tested an ICBM out of California just to show that they work. And those kind of things, or maybe there's a test, uh, uh, some sort of missile test in the region by the United States that might get interpreted by North Korea as an, as an incoming attack. There's a lot of joint exercise be- between South Korea and the United States. They do these uh, exercises on a regular basis. Well, what if one of these days they get misinterpreted as a plan, an assembly for war? Because you have to move all of these various military assets into the region to actually start a war. It might be perceived as an actual war. We had a problem with this. It was called the Able Archer Exercise with NATO in, during the Cold War, where we had this multi-country uh, military practice exercise, and the Soviet Union was interpreting this as, okay, they're getting ready to attack. We better get ready. Yeah. And there was almost a miscommunication and, and war. So that's the kind of thing that people worry about. So that's called crisis stability when you have certain things set up so that even if there is a crisis, right. it doesn't end up going nuclear very quickly. Uh, crisis instability is when you have a very dangerous and unstable condition where there is incentives on either side to use nuclear weapons first, or if the other side perceives there is an incentive there. So what that means is North Korea has a relatively small number of nuclear weapons and delivery systems. They worry if there is an incoming attack against those systems, they're going to lose them. So if you don't, instead of losing them, use them. So there's an incentive to launch first, uh, because otherwise it would be wiped out. So the United States might understand that, and if there's a crisis, they would feel like they would have to to use them first. Because right. if we don't use them, then there's going to be an incoming attack. And in terms of actually the decision for that to get launched, I mean, do you think it is Kim Jong-un who has the final say there? Do they have a system in place? Or, I mean, how do you think that works? Because in the movie, it, it seems very much like he's, uh, you know, he, they're waiting for him to give the command do you think they have a yep. more formal structure? If he doesn't say the, that final number yeah, in the right. countdown, <laughs> they can't possibly push the button. Exactly. Uh, so that's the kind of thing where there's some information, but we don't have a lot of details on what's called the command and control system or the C2 
This is another aspect to crisis stability. If you don't believe that your command and control system can withstand a first strike, you would be worried that your even if your weapons are still there, you can't actually order them to be used or some sort of communication breakdown or the weapons will the launch silos won't be able to be used. Right. That whole process there's a very complicated chain. It's not simply a matter of having a bomb uh, and a radio to push have someone push the button. Yeah. It's a lot of things that are are you have to set up. Yeah. Uh, the United States spends a lot of money so that their uh, system is, is redundant, that there are things that can't be hacked into, radio signals can't be broken, those kind of uh, communication systems. So that in the event of a nuclear attack, which is a pretty disruptive event, you don't have that incentive to use it first. Because if you do, you think there's an incoming attack. What if it's not actually an attack? It's just a, any number of these examples we've had of oh, never mind, it was just a satellite launch, right. or it was a flock of geese, or yeah, it was yeah. the sun reflecting off of a certain beautiful horizon. Yeah. <laughs> uh, oh, that's not actually a nuclear attack. <laughs> so if you don't have those systems in place where you feel like we can survive a little bit, once the bombs start hitting and we have confirmation, right. then we can use them, that's uh, another big uh, thing you want to have. So North Korea may not have a C2 system that they consider uh, sturdy enough and resilient enough against an incoming attack. Because if you don't feel like your systems are strong enough that you can survive a little bit and then order an attack, you do what's called pre-delegation. You tell the local commanders who actually have their fingers on the button, because Kim most likely won't push a button himself. Right. It'll be someone in a missile silo or working with a mobile missile launching system that pushes the final button or most likely turns a key or something. Uh, Maybe it's a giant plunger like you see in the cartoons (laughs) with the TNT. Right. (laughs) Wiley Coyote. So pre-delegation means that, all right, there's a crisis. We pre-delegated our launch authority under these conditions, launch your weapon, and it's out of the leadership hands. They can still order an attack, but the the people locally can do so. Uh, It's most likely that North Korea doesn't have safety measures and other kinds of things like permissive action links or PALs that are locks you put on a missile system or a missile warhead itself that prevent them from being used or detonated without a certain code being given. So the United States now has these PAL systems on their missiles. So so that an individual person who is in a silo has to receive these codes, they get them, they launch, they're told where to launch, and something goes off. So that way uh, someone who's hey, a little bit crazy, maybe they had a bad night, maybe they have mental issues, maybe they're upset because they watched an interview that they didn't like or yeah, someone interviewed yeah. them, right. any number of things. <laughs> so they can't just use these weapons um, by themselves. It's uncertain whether or not North Korea has those. Most likely they don't. And also most likely they don't pre-delegate their weapons. It's okay. all pretty, uh, pretty centralized, which might create an incentive for someone to take out Kim Jong-un, and who knows what the process is in place yeah. after that. So North Korea is clearly the hermit kingdom. We... we don't have a lot of visibility in terms of how their nuclear launch process works. Is that different from maybe other countries, say Russia or or China or something? Or is this a problem for most countries where we just have the strategic, uh, yeah, black hole where we have to make some guesses? Well, it's a big benefit when we can know what another country does in terms of their command and control. It's difficult because you want to strike that balance between giving out enough information as the country that has the weapons and the weapon systems that you let the other side know, hey, we have this, it works. Here's the process, so don't freak out. We have permissive acts of links. But you try not to give enough information that they can exploit those things. So that's why you have to try to make them resilient and all of that. Uh, It's actually a a pretty big positive benefit from arms control agreements. You know how many weapons the other side has. 
so you don't have to build an endless supply of your own. If you know they have, say, 1,500 nuclear weapons that can be deployed on missiles, bombers, uh, submarines, things like that, right. that can use you can use that information to plan your own defenses and how many you need to deter someone from being able to use them. There's the strategic discussions that take place between countries. Uh, the United States and China are a little bit reluctant on that front. China wants us to recognize them as some a country that can deter us, that we have a sense of mutual assured destruction. The United States is somewhat not comfortable saying that that exists as a reality, right. even though possibly it does. Okay. Uh, because if they do do that, if they recognize that publicly, then countries like Taiwan might think, oh, if so you are deterred from fighting China? That's not great because okay. that prevents us from being able to rely on you as an ally. Uh, those are very complicated debates that countries go through. And it makes the United States potentially have to ask itself, should it help North Korea? Should it reach out to North Korea so that it can maybe develop some of these uh, command and control systems? That we Should we help them build these systems in place or procedures like the two-man rule right. where it takes two people uh, that are separate in a room to turn a key and actually launch a weapon. Those are the kind of things that we might go about helping them. There's been a lot of policy recommendations by analysts that we should go out and do this. We actually did some of this stuff with the Soviet Union during the Cold War, even at the height of our conflict and ideological differences and back-and-forth threats. We still cooperated on these kind of things because it helps create a sense of stability as much as that stability between nuclear-powered countries that can exist. Right. Or if we don't help them, maybe China can. Pakistan, who has a relationship with North Korea, most likely Pakistan has uh, built these PAL systems indigenously so they can potentially outsource that technology. North Korea would obviously be worried about a kill switch being put into those systems. Right, but right. if you tell them, hey, this is how you build the tech – Build it yourself. Yeah. Or if we focus on procedures, that might be helpful to increase crisis stability uh, should a crisis happen, which is, I would say, probably just a matter of time before something like this might happen. Wow. Geez, that's scary. Um, well, so can we can we talk, I mean, just for a second. So that's all about the process. In terms of the actual, like, the hardware itself, right? Mm -hmm. um, in the movie, it, it just struck me as, like, he gives the order, and all of a sudden, like, two minutes later, there are, like, missiles coming out of the silos. And I, I don't know, are they supposed to, like, peek out of the silos before they're launched? I mean, do, do they actually have weapons that are kind of ready ready to go, like, on that quick notice, you think? or Today? Most likely not. Okay. Uh, 2014. Right. I feel better now. 2014, most likely <laughs> Definitely not. Definitely not, yeah. But let me let me uh, create some anxiety for you. <laughs> oh, the North Korean weapons are, are definitely not silo-based these days. So in the movie, for some weird reason, all of these missiles are right next yeah. to each other. And they're right next to Kim Jong-un's home base of operation. Wow, that's an incredible set of targets well, for, for U.S. defense for, planners. It made for a great final scene where the helicopter's yeah. flying through this like landscape of missiles rising, but yeah, it's mm -hmm. kind of silly. It, well, it's it's definitely not a thing you would do to plan uh, where you put these weapons because the, in the United States these days, we have all of our ICBM missile fields, like literally call them fields of missiles, like they plant in a garden or something. They're out kind of in the middle of nowhere. To These days, they're in the Midwest, so like Montana... Wyoming, the Dakotas, uh, sorry, no no offense to the people that live in that area, but you're kind of the sponge. Center of the country, center of the country will put all these weapons there. They're going to have to be targeted by the other side's forces, and at least they're not located right next to like major large cities. Right. But the idea is and when you arrange these missile silos, you put one missile silo 
far enough away from another one that one incoming nuclear weapon can't destroy two of them. Okay. Because most likely, most likely you're going to have to put a couple different weapons on an individual silo because what if you miss? What if it's hardened stronger than one weapon can destroy? You'd have to do a, a number of different things. You don't put them all in the exact same place and you don't put them near the White House. Where the decision maker right. has to make that <laughs> yeah. choice, because that's where they're going to strike. Yeah, that's where the missile is going to come at you, right? <laughs> it, exactly. Okay. So, that makes sense. so North Korea doesn't have silo-based missiles. The idea too that a silo would open up and then the rocket would kind of slowly reach its way out. When you build a launch system, you want it so that it, when you have what's called positive control, you say, "All right, we're going to launch. Let's do it now." When the decision maker says go, the time that it takes for that missile to get launched is as little as possible. Okay. Because if there's an incoming attack that's targeting those weapons, you want to get them out, up and out pretty quickly. Uh, so things like the rockets slowly raising themselves up, that maybe just happened to be the stage of production and, and design or where they're at in North Korea. The United States used to have pretty slow launching weapons because it takes time to fuel the rockets because – most of the time, if you have liquid-based fuel for your missiles, you it's corrosive, the, the oh, fuel okay. itself. So it can't sit in the tanks. It can't just for, sit in the okay. tanks. Um, so you have to fuel them. And that could take several hours yeah. sometimes. And a lot of the times, the, the quote-unquote best missile silo system is one that has solid fuel that just sits ready to go and can launch inside the silo. So it doesn't take time for it to rise up. Or if you have a system that called a cold launch, it launches the missile up quickly and then the missile then uh, first stage ignites and it flies away. So that silo isn't destroyed and you can put a new missile in it, oh, wow. reload and then fire again. Oh, okay. So those are very complex and advanced silo systems. Apparently the ones in the film are pretty Great, rudimentary. Yeah, primitive, yeah. Um, but today North Korea's uh, missile systems as they are, they are underground. The thing that they're trying to build, which they're trying to build by early 2020s is a mobile based rocket launch system. So these are things on the back of trucks. You go out to the middle of a field, so it's kind of hard to track them. If you launch a weapon from wherever it happens to be, uh, you'd have to know where it's going to go. So because you know it's not instantaneous. Yeah. And these things would would rise up. The launchers would rise up. They sta stabilize themselves. They would get fueled really quickly, and then they would get launched from there. Okay. They wouldn't be in a silo. Right. But might be a plan that they want to do eventually, but. Uh, S these uh, mobile launch systems allow you to, to hide them in caves and tunnel systems. And you'll never know what door these systems will come out of. A lot of China's mobile mis missile systems are in mountains with hundreds and hundreds of miles of tunnels. So it's really difficult to know where well, to get to them. I mean, is that – do you think that's realistic? I mean, it seems like they've come up the learning curve kind of alarmingly quickly. I mean, I remember mm – -hmm. yeah, not – it seems like not too long ago, I mean, they had all these failed tests and everyone's laughing at them. And now all of a sudden, like, Anderson Cooper on CNN is talking about this and, and yeah. Donald Trump's tweeting at them. In any sort of missile development program, you're going to have some hiccups at the beginning. I, I think about those clips of, like, the early NASA rockets yeah. Like they, yeah, going off in, like, wild directions and well, exploding. Where are we going on Monday? So there's an upcoming big solar eclipse. Yeah. We're going to be flying down to Kitty Hawk. Yeah, well, where... ho hopefully, hopefully the weather will be good. <laughs> we'll, we'll take a small plane down to Kitty Hawk, North Carolina. Well, imagine all of those failed attempts at flight at the beginning. That, a lot of – it takes some time yeah, for these right. things to be developed. That's but right. even, even before this latest – um, ICBM that uh, they have uh, most likely pretty close to being able to deploy maybe within maybe next year. 
they had the the Tapo Dong 2, which was a launch pad launched ICBM. So it's not in a silo. It sits on a launch pad and it takes time to fuel it and, and launch it. Those are easy targets to destroy them. You hear a lot of people, a lot of politicians uh, will and talking heads will say, why don't you just blow up the missiles on the launch pad? Why do we even let them sit there? Right. Well, North Korea has listened to those arguments and have said, great, we're going to put them on mobile launchers. You won't be able to find them. Nice try. These mobile missile systems require pretty advanced C2 command and control systems Okay. if Kim Jong-un wants to maintain centralized control because you have to be able to communicate with them. They're on the, they're on, they're on the move, so we don't know where they are. They don't know maybe where they are at any given moment. Uh, so they have to be able to communicate with them instantly, whether it's radio, some sort of secured system. Those mobile systems early on for a lot of countries that have had them you've seen pre-delegated launch authority given to them. So that's a pretty dangerous situation. So you asked about the, the recent developments. I'll, I'll talk a little bit about that. So North Korea has conducted at least five nuclear weapon tests or nuclear device tests. Usually you could define a weapon as an explosive device attached to a delivery system um, that can be you know used and deployed. Kind of like a firework? <laughs> uh, show them what you're worth. Yeah. These test devices, uh, they've done five tests... Uh, Possibly the sixth one might be coming in the next couple of months. Um, these tests were done in 2006 was the first one, 2009, 2013, and there's been two in 2016. And yeah, the world laughed at North Korea the first couple of times they tested these nuclear devices. The first couple of months might have fizzled out, didn't actually create a full chain reaction. Yeah. And is, I mean, is this progressing? Is this how long you would expect it to take a country in 2000, you know, in the 2010s to develop it? Because we've been we've been making nuclear weapons now for I mean, the world has, has yeah. known about it for more than 50 years. I mean, is this is this slow progress? Is this? Normal progress? I would say this is pretty fast. Really? Um, we, okay. we took us quite a while to develop fairly advanced missile systems. Yeah. It used to be our, our rocket systems, like our Titan II missile system. It lasted a long time, but it wasn't planned to be in the service for very long, less okay. than 10 years. Okay. You know, because these things got a lot of turnover early on because we would develop something new. And now this current uh, Minuteman uh, rockets that we have now have been in service for quite a long time because – these things have gotten to the point where they're good, and any sort of change is just marginally better than the previous system. It takes a it takes a while to, to perfect a lot of the different things because it's not just having a warhead, it's not just having a missile, it's having a reentry vehicle because these things go up into space and they come down and they enter the atmosphere. Right. They need to be shielded. They need to not just crumble. Yeah. The internal mechanisms for the warhead itself can't a wire can't come loose. It needs to know that it explodes at a certain location all that stuff has to work and that's maybe where north korea hasn't perfected something yet okay the most recent test that they did on their icbm uh the intercontinental ballistic missile some people have said that the video footage that was shown from japan because you can kind of see where the rocket's coming in it might have broken up so they're still going to have to work on that okay. but you know it's one des design challenge that you're trying to develop and you yeah. and you keep going most likely the warheads that they have now uh, are fairly simple, uh, probably between 10 and 20 kiloton yields. And, and how much do they say in the movie? In the 15 mo megatons. Okay. All That's right. so. fairly advanced. <laughs> okay. it, it reminds me a lot of the, the Red Dawn remake movie that came out a couple years ago. Okay. The original Red Dawn is the invasion of the United States yeah, by Cuba and Soviet Union. Yeah. This new Red Dawn was supposed to be the United States and China getting into a war. Last second in post-production, they changed it to North Korea. And they're like, wait, hold on a second. 
North Korea doesn't have an army that's big enough to evade the United States. They don't have like airplanes and amphibious assault vehicles. And okay, well, we'll just advance it 10 years from now and say, yeah, they're ready to go. The movie does a similar thing with their nuclear program. At a certain point, when you're talking about 10 to 20 kilotons, that can destroy a big chunk of a city if you can get it if you can get it to where it needs to go. So in terms of the missile test, one of the things that we should worry about is not just the long-range ICBMs that are in the news these days that can hit the continental United States. What we should also worry about are the short and medium-range missiles that they have that can hit South Korea, Japan, U.S. bases in the region like Guam. Uh, those are the kind of things that we should worry about as well. This, people shouldn't forget about that. You talked about how quickly this process, how fast it's going. Well, within the last six years of Kim Jong-un's rule, his entire time that he's been in office, they've tested more missiles than his father and his grandfather combined. Um, as of July 28th, Kim Il-sung, the founder of North Korea as we know it today, tested 15 missiles across all these different platforms. Uh, his son did 16. Kim Jong-un has done 84. 42 in the last two years. So that's, yeah, that's quite a lot more. It, it's, it's quite a bit. That's kind of scary. And this latest rocket, the KN-14 uh, intercontinental ballistic missile. It's a liquid-fueled rocket. The latest tests in July have shown to be fairly, you know, they, they, they've shown to work, more or less. And the interesting thing about this, these types of tests is they are launched straight up into the air, vertically, and then they will check to see the altitude and the burn rate, and the analysts can decide from there how far it could go if they change the trajectory, maybe oh, okay. a more yeah, shallow, yeah. flatter trajectory. The more shallow you make it, the harder the reentry vehicle needs to be because it's just a lot more uh, instability in the, in the whole process. You want to make sure the thing is more more rugged, but it can show you more or less that today they have the ability, if these were to be deployed, uh, to hit Los Angeles, Chicago, potentially even New York, Boston, and D.C. if you can change the trajectory and if the rocket is hard enough to maintain that. And they might not be uh, you know, maybe a year or two away before they were able to reach that point. Yeah. So it's it's hard to figure out uh, where, where they are, what they want to do with the weapons. These are all the debates that people think about these days. Yeah. But I think the final thing I want to talk, complain about, to get super critical, <laughs> is the movie's premise that if you just take out Kim Jong-un, yeah. if you make these people think that he's a, a crybaby, that it will change everything. That there's someone... There's this movement just waiting for North Korea. Yeah, if, to... if only we didn't have Kim Jong on there, democracy would would thrive and flourish. Yes, and I think even the movie itself has internal conflicts. They say if you kill Kim Jong Un, the military or one of his brothers will just take over. But if you make him cry, then something different will happen. I don't really understand that process very much. Yeah. Um, I think it's important too because a lot of people will simply say, "Why don't we just take out this person and everything will be fine?" Well, we've seen that a lot. Of when you take the uh, a strong man out of the equation, a vacuum gets filled with someone we don't necessarily know right. who it is. There's not any evidence yeah. that says there's just there's this dissent movement throughout the country that are just waiting for something to happen. This, this is the people who have had propaganda put on them for for exactly. Decades. I mean that's it. I mean you figure after generations of brainwashing. I mean how how do you expect? And it seems as if the level of control because it's a relatively small country relative to, mm-hmm. for example, Soviet Union or uh, where they were controlling you know the whole Eastern Bloc and everything. They had a lot of a lot of balls in the air. I mean he can really focus in on this population and really have them under his foot. It's hard to imagine that system breaking down and not just being a military takeover and finding some new person. Uh, to take over and in yeah. the, the movie it takes little jokes I mean, it's a comedy but it, the very flippant response at the end it's weird too 
And hopefully people don't take away from that. Oh, yeah. This, I mean, I know I laughed, but yeah, this, that, that policy makes sense. Everybody in Korea is supposedly watching this live uh, in, in North Korea, which is funny because they don't. a lot of people in North Korea don't speak English. And there's no subtitles that's, that's, on the TV. Yeah, right, exactly. Uh, so they're just, oh, yeah, here's, here's what's happening. Um, and the other things that they don't really talk about is China. What is China thinking about this whole thing? China would find out that the United States had an assassination mission. Most likely they'd figure that out. Or just why isn't China involved in this process? One of the things that China worries about okay. is that if there's instability, if the regime collapses, a couple things will happen. One, North Korea and South Korea might unify under a common country that will be, one, having nuclear weapons. And, and that country would presumably be a democratic, yes. uh, yeah, aligned with, more Western aligned than, yeah. Yeah, possibly aligned with Japan and the United States. Yeah. That's something that's pretty worrisome for for China. Uh, China has studied the collapse of the Soviet Union and the unification of, of East and West Berlin and has seen what happens when this when it takes place. They're also very worried about refugees that are, would flow over the border during a crisis and then come into to China and cause a lot more social unrest in China. Yeah. And in this movie, it's not really part of the plot. It's just, oh, yeah, democracy, everything will be fine. Who knows what that yeah. would look like? No, it feels like it's kind of like uh, you got your neighbor, you got that crazy next door neighbor who walks around naked wielding a shotgun, and you don't yeah. you don't want to touch him, but you also want him to just stay happy. The movie doesn't talk about what happens uh, with the military. That do they just give up and and turn over? Um, there's some scenes where there's like young military people in the film that kind of give up and like, oh, I'm on your side now. Yeah. Is that really what's going to take place? Because the military has had a, a position of influence and power in North Korea for the longest time. The Kim family dynasty could not survive without the military. And he knows that. His father has known that. His grandfather has known that. So the military is, is raised high. They get all the best benefits. In a world of a democracy, maybe the military wouldn't get that. So why would they support these upcoming uh, democratic elections, but who knows? Well, maybe in the, maybe in the sequel, uh, Jonah Hill and Michael Sarah go to <laughs> travel to North Korea to uh, yeah resolve all these these open questions about well, the power vacuum. We'll get uh, super critical about super bad too. <laughs> yeah. uh, and also, what happens to the nukes? They don't really talk about that. Sorry if I made you more anxious and have given you more nightmare fuel. Shall we play a game? Let's uh, let's play a quick little game here. I have a game prepared based on some of the silliness that we hear about North Korea. And again, okay. I want to stress, North Korea, there's some funny stories that come out about it, but it's certainly a country that we should take serious in terms of what they can do. We need to still also be able to sleep at night and get through our day. So let's play a round of the classic game, Trivial Pursuit, North Korea edition. Okay. Yep. So I've prepared a couple facts about North Korea and All maybe right. the Kim family that some of them are real in the sense that people talk about them. It's an actual thing that people say about North Korea, North Koreans say about themselves, part of uh, the mythos of the Kim family. Yeah. And a couple others I just made up. All right. Let's play a game. <laughs> Number one, North Korean coal can be ground up, stirred into water, and drunk for a quick burst of five-hour oh energy. Oh, my goodness. Uh... Is that a real fact or a made-up one? This sounds made up, I think, because if it was maybe if it was like Kim Jong Un would do this, uh, then then I could see it being real. But I, I say fake. Fake. That is correct. It is right. fake. All so right. I'm going to make a little mark here. I've got 17 of them. We'll run through pretty quickly. So if All you right, get more than half, uh, you get a prize. Let's do it. Fact number two: North Korea smells like baked cookies when it rains. <laughs> 
I'm going to say that's fake, too. I, what would be the... That seems too Western. That seems too, <laughs> like, Midwestern baked cookie. I should have said, like, a, a, a rice cookie a rice with cake, bean, yeah, bean paste. exactly. Which are delicious. Yeah. Uh, that is true. It is also fake. Okay. Uh, I, I made that one up. But what about fact number three? When Kim Jong-il was born, he was born on a sacred mountain. A new star was formed. Winter turned to spring, and a double rainbow appeared. This sounds this sounds real. This sounds like the, the Kim family ridiculousness that I've heard. Excellent. It's on the brochures. It's, right. It is totally real. All right. Yeah. All right. So you're doing pretty good so far. I'll look for that star tonight. <laughs> Maybe there'll be some new stuff with Kim Jong-un and the eclipse. <laughs> yeah. Uh, fact number four. Kim Jong-un actually rides his ICBM missile test like in Dr. Strangelove so we can most accurately uh, measure their test results. I think they they peddle some BS there, but not that level. I'm going to say that's fake. Excellent. Uh, it is fake, but I, right. I just want that imagery. Yeah, I, that's hopefully, pretty good one. At least they can you use Photoshop, CGI. Photoshop that. Uh, fact number five. In 2016, North Korea invented a hangover-free liquor that is still 40% alcohol by volume. This is a tough one, actually. This could swing either way. I'm going to say true, just because it's kind of like weird and ridiculous. Excellent. You're batting 1,000. Wow. That's, All a, right. that's a real thing that North Korea says they claim. Okay. I know we got to get our hands on it, some of that. Yeah, seriously. Fact number six. Kim Jong-il does not need to go to the bathroom. <laughs> well, this was this was the joke from the movie, right? That he doesn't... He doesn't pee and poop. But was uh, it made up for the movie, or was it? Based I think on a it was thing? made up for the movie. I, yeah, I think it was made up for the movie. Sorry to hear that, Professor. No, man, they, it's a real thing. Really? Yeah. Are you serious? He burns all his energy internally and doesn't have any waste oh products. Oh my god! He works that hard. That's insane. I mean, that saves that saves what, like twenty minutes a day or something? <laughs> it's it's efficient. It's, yeah, exactly. North Korea, for fact number seven, already has the last season of Game of Thrones. And the ending is that Kim Jong-un is on the Iron Throne. Real or fake? Okay, so knowing that I'm tying a huge Game of Thrones fan here, I think you've thrown this one into the mix. I'm going to say fake. Correct. Okay. Uh, but if he does, you know, send me an email on Supercritical. All right, yeah, you'll be the first. Yeah, supercriticalpodcast at gmail.com. I'll click that link. It doesn't matter. If I see Game of Thrones on there, I'm yeah. going to click it. Before the email address gets shut down by the North Koreans. Exactly. Get it in quick. Fact number eight. In 2012, North Korean archaeologists unearthed a mythical unicorn lair just 220 yards from a Pyongyang temple. Just 220 yards? Pretty close by. Oh, my God. Uh, I'm going to say true. Correct. Ah, uh, okay. Nice. I think hopefully you can visit it the next time when they lift the travel ban to yeah, North the, Korea. Right, yeah, the next time I'm in, I'm in, I'm in the North Korean area. <laughs> Fact number nine. Kim Jong-il invented the hamburger. Oh, man. Uh... <laughs> no, um, I'm going to say fake. Sorry to hear that, Professor. That one was real. Wow. All the props to him if he did invent the hamburger. It's delicious. Fact number 10. Kim Jong-il can count out to 500 digits of pie. Uh, that's a, that's, this is a tough one. It, it could go either way. I'm just going to say no. It's just a pure guess. Fake. Excellent. Yeah, I made up that one, so well done. Okay. Uh, but that would be a pretty cool talent to have. Yeah. Uh, I knew a guy who could do like out to 100. Oh, really? Mm -hmm. He probably was very popular with great, the ladies. Great at parties. Yeah. Fact number 11. Kim Jong-un bowled a perfect game in 1994. I think this is 
Oh, Kim Jong Un. This sounds true, and you're a bowling fan, mm-hmm. so I, I'm gonna say yes. I'm gonna say this is true. Excellent. Correct. Yeah. Oh, you're rolling through it. I, I, right now, I have you nine to two. All right. Correctly guessing the real from fake facts. Real facts? It's hard to tell. I've I'm, been reading a lot of fake news, so I'm able to uh, studied up. Yeah. Fact number twelve. Okay. North Korea has the cure for AIDS and Ebola, but won't share it with the rest of the world. I think that's fake. I feel like they would want to be seen as being, yeah, global citizens magnanimous. So I think fake. Sorry to hear that, Professor. Nope. They they claim they really? have it and they just can't have it. Okay, so but nobody in North I sleep soundly knowing that nobody in North Korea has AIDS or Ebola. That's it's, it's pretty nice. That's wonderful. Fact number thirteen. Kim Jong un could drive when he was three years old. True. True? I say true. Excellent. Yep, that one's on a poster, I'm okay. sure. Somewhere. That's a true fact. All right. Fact number 14. Bill Clinton asked Kim Jong-il for advice on what to name his cat. Um, I'm going to say fake. That's weird. Uh, yeah, you got that one. All right. I thought that one was going to get you. No. I just think it would be funny if the name was Socks. That was what he <laughs> yeah, suggested. Exactly. I bet, I bet Kim Jong-il had a pretty good sock collection. Oh, probably. Yeah, he must love socks. Fact number 15. Kim Jong-un starred in a remake of the movie Space Jam. Michael Jordan said it was vastly superior to the original. Real or fake? I mean, I'm going to say fake. I just like the idea of a budget, low-budget North Korean version of Space Jam starring Kim Jong-un. Excellent. Yep, you got that one right. right. Uh, although Kim Jong-il is famous for having kidnapped a director, a movie star, for a long time, a number of years, and to make an, a bunch of movies. Yeah, that was on John Oliver, yep. right? Yeah, that's crazy. It's a, it's a scary story, that whole endeavor. I'll put a, a link to an article about that in the show notes. Fact number 16. Kim Jong-il first picked up a golf club in 1994 and on his first game shot a 38 under par that included no less than 11 holes in one. I'm going to say yes. This sounds like a ridiculous, uh, yeah, one of those ridiculous Kim family things. Yep, uh, it is absolutely right. You can see somewhere the scorecard. All right. Pretty, it's pretty good. Last fact. North Korea had its own Roswell alien landing event, but the aliens survived, and they never wanted to leave the country. <laughs> Does the alien still live in North, North Korea? Poss- possibly lives in that compound we talked about Yeah, earlier. exactly. I'm going to say fake. Correct. All right. Well done. Well done. I need to do better at my games here. I, uh, man, I'm just, I'm just, you know, I'm up on North Korea. Well, well done. You only got three wrong there, so uh, you're now the, you're now the North Korea expert on yeah, the podcast. Yeah, what's my, what's my prize, Tim? I'll come up with something. All right, cool. Maybe I'll get you, I'll get you a bottle of that. Uh, of the magic liquor. Yeah, the magic liquor. I'll, <laughs> I'll look out for it. Well, I'll get you a bottle of Johnny Walker. How about uh, that? Okay, great. And the honor of the supreme leader. Strange game. The only winning move is not to play. All right, so let's uh, let's wrap up here. Let's do our parking lot movie discussion, which is where the movie's finished. Even though it had a limited release, let's pretend we were salt in the theater. We're in the parking lot before we head home. Let's talk about what we thought about the movie. Is it okay to have a movie that's a fiction film about assassinating a current existing leader? Is that appropriate? Is it okay because it's a movie and people can do whatever they want? So clearly, this resulted in some sort of international incident. Is it the responsibility of the filmmaker? All those kind of things. So yeah. what do you think about this stuff? No, I. It, that's actually a very good ethical question, I think. I, I would say this 
this is on the side of parody and kind of farce, but it's just over that line. It's it's almost just uncomfortable enough to be a real thing about you know sending somebody in. But the fact that it's kind of this buffoon guy going in, they have the Katy Perry thing. If it wasn't for if this was a series, if this wasn't a bro comedy, mm-hmm. yeah, then I think that this is maybe not in good taste. But mm. I guess the other thing though to think about is. Who, they might not get the humor of it if it made its way over there, right? I, I don't know. I, I think it would take a lot more um, analysis from people that are much smarter than me about Korean culture. Mm-hmm. If we heard of a movie in North Korea that's right. about assassinating our president, right? we would be like, wow, one, that's silly, and two, how dare you? I think people might be a little bit upset by that. I can see a lot of people in this country being quite upset. Yes. Uh, recently, there was a, a bad CGI film that North Korea's uh, state-run media agency released where it shows blowing up New, New York. York. Right, yep. exactly. And we all kind of – some of us laughed at that. Some people got really upset by that. Some people worried. Yeah. So is it the same thing? I, I don't really – I don't know. But I know Seth Rogen thought it was going to be a positive impact. Uh, he predicted that the film would make its way into North Korea and, quote, we were told that one of the reasons they're so against the film, them being North Korea, is that they're afraid it will actually get into North Korea. That they do have bootlegs and stuff, and maybe the tapes will make their way to North Korea and cause a revolution. And then I'm sure he did a Seth Rogen laugh, like, ah. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. no, I mean, you know, there, there is a long history of art and writing and film encouraging a you know dissident movement. I mean, a lot of... A lot of writers under the Soviet Union. Who knows if there is something like that in North Korea? I, you know, we don't know, and I wouldn't. I would think it's probably not very likely. So maybe it's. But is it appropriate for the West to kind of take that role as the um, to to hmm. put forward the dissident movement? I I don't know. That that should probably be left to the you know local people. And you know, I worry if they tried to do anything like that, they they'd be murdered. Frankly, there are some groups that are trying to do similar things in North Korea. There's a group called Fighters for a Free North Korea and another called Human Ra- the Human Rights Foundation that airdropped uh, USB memory sticks into North Korea with the entire Korean language Wikipedia and a couple other documents and films. You saw that in the John Oliver clip yeah, that right, recently was shown. Right, yeah. They were showing things like uh, – what was it? Like NCIS or one of the <laughs> cop shows. And they were showing uh, someone being arrested in the United States yeah, and being read their rights. Exactly. Yeah. So to show that there is an, a, an alternate thing that people can see and of a different reality. Yeah. I think some of those things might be more powerful than assassinating than assassinate, right. their leader. So if this film was a little more serious or a comedy, but it didn't have a graphic depiction of their leader being destroyed, it's how you communicate that message. Yeah. And simply to say, oh, yeah, no, this is the silly thing. This is how Americans act. Uh, oh, by the way, little message at the end. If this happens, if your leader is killed, don't worry about it. Don't blame us. Don't blame whoever it is. Everything's going to be fine, and you're going to live in peace yeah. forever. No, that's that's fair. I, I think I think that's that's a good point. You know, I guess there is some seriousness to this, though. Or here in your your show notes, you have that the Rand Corporation defense analyst Bruce Bennett said that the film was coarse and over the top, but that the depiction of Kim Jong Un was a picture that needed to get into North Korea. There are a lot of people in prison camps in North Korea who need to take advantage of a change of thinking in the North. So who knows? Maybe yeah. this is uh, part of a new uh, a new set of films as we <laughs> go down this path that will maybe try to do this. Maybe get a different uh, team of people working on it. Uh, make it a little less about, you know, dick jokes and, <laughs> and love interests of weird things like that. Yeah. 
have it have it a little different. Maybe it can work. We need Tom Hanks. We need J.J. Uh, uh, Abrams. We need yeah. We need some high high quality talent. Who hates Tom Hanks? <laughs> exactly. Uh, so let's all right. Let's close it out here. Let's do our rating system. Okay. As listeners to the show know, we like to have a consistent rating, one out of five, to rate the films or the pop culture, or whatever it happens to be that we're doing, but. We want to tailor it so that it's you know it's exact to the film, so that it's no it's not some generic rating system. The listeners of our podcast don't get generic rating systems; they get the finely tuned, the best. Yeah. Uh, so I think for this one, let's do one out of five fireworks. Okay. Right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, one fireworks really not as impressive as five, especially when the goal of said fireworks is to you know show show them what you're worth. Right. Exactly. Right. So how many fireworks? One out of five. Would you give? This comedy, I'd say, I'd give it three. I mean, you know, it's not, it's not a great movie. Um, there's some good running gags in there. Uh, a lot of reliance on what you'd expect from from the bunch, but they get, I think, some extra points for actually having some thought. I mean, the fact that we were able to talk for almost mm-hmm. an hour and a half out of this, that's uh, that's pretty good. So three, three, I think is appropriate. I would also yeah. go three. Yeah. I think the first time I saw this movie, I thought it was silly, but there was there was definitely some scenes that I enjoyed. And I got really upset about the nuke stuff. And then when we rewatched it today, some of these things don't bother me as much. Maybe I'm getting older. But there are some stuff that keep it from being a four. Comedies are rarely, for me, five, even though I really enjoy them. I just have a high bar for, like, a top five comedy. Right. Like, Blues Brothers, is, I think, is hilarious. It's funny. That kind of comedy is a five out of five. For this one, if you did, if you took out some of the more already played out stereotypical yeah. Asian racist humor. Right. You take that out, you take out the kind of weird Orientalism with the with Souk and the Seth Rogen character. You, you just you can just do that differently. And I think this would be very, very, very funny. More than it already is. But it's hard to feel weird. It's feel it's weird to criticize yeah, no, and nitpick okay, a comedy. Right. You know? No one, I, I, no one wants to be that guy at a party. I get but. you. I mean, they could have done more. It's an interesting idea, and they, they maybe could have done more with it, but I think it delivered what was expected of it, and it's good for a laugh and it, good to it, talk It's hard about. to compare it to the hype that went into it. Like, yeah. The tagline for this movie is literally, the film that North Korea didn't want you to see. Right. Eh, it maybe didn't live up to that, but I would say a three. I, I would recommend it to people to see as a cultural touchstone, but that's about it. Uh, we usually have some sort of... Uh, recommendations at the end if you like this also check out that uh i've got some things maybe gay's got some things that he come up with i have two things here one uh, a book called nothing to envy love life and death in north korea by barbara demick came out in 2010 it's a great story about life in the hermit kingdom really a lot of dissident stories and paints a good picture of what north korea is like two just read the Arms Control Wonk blog, uh, and the Arms Control Wonk podcast is a great thing to listen to. It's done by Jeffrey Lewis and Aaron Stein, um, who uh, – Jeff Lewis works for the Center for Nonproliferation Studies. They have a great series of discussions about North Korea. They're some of the best people that have satellite imagery and open source information. They look at the pictures of the rockets during the parades, and they can tell you the, what the rocketeer designer had for lunch. Like, they're that good. For that kind of analysis. So check them out. If you're not following them, you're not really following the North Korea missile situation. Yeah, and I'd recommend um, actually this website, North Korea Econ Watch. It's nkeconwatch.com. I was actually by uh, a student who was at George Mason University while I was mm-hmm. there. He was a PhD student. And uh, not not really tailored to nuclear stuff, but just a good idea of some of the, some of the stuff going on in the country if you're interested in North Korea. Uh, and obviously, a lot of people know about Team America World Police uh, by the guys from South Park. Uh, that movie parodies 
uh, Kim Jong Il, Kim Jong Un's father. It's always a fun one. I don't know, don't think I have to actually recommend it uh, because you should already have heard about it. But if you haven't, it's another fun take, and it's I would say that's a better comedy. And the whole thing is done with puppets, like uh, marionette, marionette. Yeah. So check that out if you like there's these a, kind of things. Uh, yeah, there's a fun scene there. Yeah. Nothing. Nothing else needs to be said about it. <laughs> Thanks for listening to another episode of the Super Critical Podcast. If you have any suggestions for future episodes or want to tell us what we got wrong, there are a couple ways you can contact the show. Facebook. We're on there. Facebook.com slash supercriticalpodcast. Twitter. You can at me at nuclearpodcast. Email the old-fashioned way, supercriticalpodcast at gmail.com. Again, if you send me a link, I just can't help myself and I'll click it. You know, hopefully North Korea doesn't try to abuse that, but... If you enjoyed the program, we would appreciate it if you were considering subscribing on iTunes or wherever you listen to the podcast and leaving a five-star review. Let us know your favorite made-up North Korea fact in the uh, the review, the five-star review, and I'll talk about it on, on Twitter, and I'll see if anyone else can tell whether or not it's real or fake. Until next time, this has been Tim Westmeyer. And Gabe. And remember, if it's pop culture and radioactive, we are bound to get super critical about it. Have a good one. And to our listeners in North Korea, Jal Kaseyong.